0: to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by the Community Orchard Network. In this monthly radio show and podcast, I'm going to take you on a journey. We'll learn about fruit trees, permaculture, food forests, and so much more. So if you're a gardener and enjoy growing your own food, if you love trees and especially fruit trees... Or if you're just interested in living a more sustainable life, you've come to the right place. I'm Susan Poisner, your host for today. So get ready, roll up your sleeves, and let's dig into today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live, email her, realityradio101 at yahoo.com. And now, your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I'd love to know... What do you grow in your garden? Myself, I love growing fruit trees, of course. But I also grow vegetables and pollinator plants. But so far, I don't really grow that many types of berries. I do have a dream, though. My dream is to grow blueberries in my yard. The problem is that where I live, blueberries really aren't that easy to grow they're fussy about the type of soil that they need. But maybe, just maybe, I can grow a berry that's blue without it being a blueberry. Hopefully, it'll be sweet and juicy too. That's why I've invited a special guest to chat with me on today's program. Don Northcott is the founder of Phytocultures Limited. He propagates and distributes hascaps, a hearty new type of berry. And guess what? It's juicy, it's sweet, and it's blue. Then in the second half of the show, I'm going to look back in time. More than six years ago, I visited the Sharing Farm Community Orchard in Richmond, British Columbia, and I was really inspired by what they did there. So much so that I came back to Toronto, Canada, and founded a community orchard in my local park. So later in the show, I'll chat with Anna Rawlings, who was involved in the Sharing Farm Orchard. Since then, things have changed. The orchard has become part of a university farming program. Anna and I will chat about lessons learned and how the orchard has changed over the years. But first, let's talk about berries that are blue, but that are not actually blueberries. On the line is Don Northcott of Phytocultures Limited. Don, are you there?
2: Yes, (laughs) ma'am.
0: How are you today? Very good. Excellent. Don, can you tell me a little bit about your company and how it is you got involved with with Housecaps?
2: Sure. Uh, Phytocultures is a plant propagation company. We we propagate, uh, for, mo- for the most part, uh, new potato varieties. Uh, we do blueberries. Uh, and we are now working with a brand-new crop uh, called blue. It's an edible blue honeysuckle. Uh, some folks call it an edible blue honeysuckle. Some folks call it a hascap berry
0: and where where were housecaps originally sort of created or invented? I understand that they're some sort of that they're a hybrid
2: well uh that's that's true uh, a little bit of the background of the biology of this crop uh, it can be found in the boreal forest in the northern regions of the globe so if you look in the forests in uh, uh, Canada from let's say from uh almost from St John's Newfoundland right up to uh up to the Yukon, you can find it uh, in in the boreal boreal forest. Uh, you can find it in uh, on the Kamchatka Peninsula in the Northern Islands of Japan, and then it goes from Siberia right around to Norway. So it's it's found in all of these areas. Uh, a little bit of uh, the specifics with regard to the uh, uh, de- development of the of the berries. Uh, the uh, uh, Aboriginal cultures, of the First Nations peoples in uh, the northern islands of Japan and on the Kamchatka Peninsula, uh, used to harvest these berries from their stalks uh, during during the spring. They have different, somewhat different species in those areas, and the berries are a little larger. And uh, that, uh, you know, went on for you know hundreds if not thousands of years.
0: And, and did, they, did they eat them fresh at that time or dry they, them?
2: Sure, they, they did. It would, it would have been uh, probably the first berry that they would have uh, come across in the, in the spring. These, these plants are extremely tolerant of cold temperatures, and they, they are—I uh, describe them a little bit as a sprinter. They're, they're one of the first, leaves, first plants to put leaves on in the uh, early spring. The flowers pop out very quickly after that. And uh, they pollinate, and in, in Prince Edward Island here, and in other parts of Canada, uh, the berries start to ripen in uh, uh, the latter part of June, and they're fully ripe here in Prince Edward Island uh, during the first week of uh, July.
0: So that's so quite early, I suppose, then.
2: Yes, yes, it would be, and it you know it would be the first berry that you'd be able to pick. Uh, uh, you know, from the forest at that time.
0: Well, you call it a sprinter, and uh, so I understand, like, obviously it would need full sun, but does it only need full sun in the early spring where the trees around it are probably don't have leaves anyways? So is well, it quite yeah, flexible like that?
2: Yeah, so I've, I've, every, if I can get into the botany side of things a little bit, uh, all of the plants uh, have, have their own special mechanism for survival. Uh, the, the hascap plant or the blue honeysuckle plant uh, is a uh, it's not a very strong competitor so what it does it, it has adapted its uh, or it has evolved to uh, be a very uh, uh, tolerant of winter conditions cold temperatures it uh, early to uh, blossom early to set berries and by the time many of the other other uh, trees in the forest like the uh, maple trees, for example, by the time they've got their full leaf, leaf uh, canopy out, this plant has pretty well completed its uh, cycle. So it already would have the berries on and, and it would just, the berries would ripen and, uh, and the plants would have been, you know, let's say botanically successful in producing its next generation of, uh, of propagules.
0: It sounds interesting. It sounds also a little bit tricky because a lot of people might think, oh, good, I can go plant it in the shade then.
2: Uh, it I I think they do best uh, in the full sunlight, and and the reason I'm saying that is um, in the, in the wild they've they've adapted to the wild conditions. But when you bring the the cultivated varieties out into the open field and you control the weeds and you control you know the competitors like the trees and things like that, they flourish uh, with abandon. So they they're very I would say. Uh, I wouldn't recommend, uh, you know, you plant them in a shady spot. But uh, uh, you know, if if they get shade for part of the day, probably that's not going to be a problem. But uh, but by and large, this this would this plant enjoys would enjoy the uh, luxury of full sunlight all day long.
0: Now, as I said in my introduction, I mean, there's lots of us, especially here in Toronto, who would love to grow blueberries, and some people do it successfully, amending the soil, making it more acidic. Um, would Haskeps give me some more flexibility if, I, you know, for people who don't live in places that where blueberries naturally thrive?
2: Uh, yes, uh, this probably would be the berry crop for people in the cities to grow. Uh, it's widely adapted to a varying uh, array of soil types uh, and, and growing conditions. So it's, 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 a, it's a true survivor. It's a true, if you want to call it a, a, a plant for northern, northern environments. Uh, we've found that, uh, that it, it, it grows quite well in rocky soils. It grows well in, in uh, you know, uh, uh, deep loam soils course you're going to get better plants the better the soil the better the plant uh, oh, say, uh, <laughs> but the uh uh some of the aspects of the plant that that really appeal to me would be uh, uh it's it doesn't appear as yet to have many uh disease organisms uh, or insect uh, uh Predators that would uh, chew the berries or eat the flowers or things like that. Uh, this so this this plant would be an ideal plant, I think, for uh, you know for home gardens or you know uh, you know city gardeners.
0: So we were talking about that that so it used to grow in the wild. It probably still grows in the wild. First Nations people used to harvest them, and so so what happened to turn it into a Haskap? Um, oh. it, it was somehow hybridized. What has it been mixed with, and how? Why? Why even bother?
2: Well, uh, uh, this is a brand new crop, and and what what several researchers have done, uh, one of them being Dr. Bob Boers with the uh, University of Saskatchewan, uh, rather innovative guy. He's worked with uh, with some of the uh, people that have collected, uh, you know, wild genetics. They've gone out to the woods and picked plants that look, they've got nice tall stems and they've got nice bushy plants and, and they've produced big berries. And what he has done, he's, he's taking these plants back to the university of Saskatchewan. He's, uh, crossed them, you know, taking the pollen from one plant, put them on the flowers of another and, uh, made berries. And then he selected those berries, taking the seeds out and growing those little plants out. And he goes through a process of, uh, Selecting the better plants from the general population, so he would create maybe four or five thousand or ten thousand seeds. He would grow ten thousand plants out in the field, and then from that ten thousand plants, he would go through and over the process of uh, positive and negative selection, where he would pick some of the good ones and 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 throw away some of the bad ones. Over let's say the course of say ten years, he would he would reduce that population of say ten thousand plants down to six or seven plants. Uh, and each of these plants would be uh, a, an individual or, or you know, they'd be they'd be like brothers and sisters, but they wouldn't be identical twins. I gotcha. So, okay. So what, what Dr. Bors has done, he has selected some some of these new uh, varieties, if they call them varieties, um, and he's made them available to uh, plant propagators such as phytocultures. We uh, would take them, uh, we would turn, let's say, one or two plants, and we would turn them into, you know, uh, 50 or 60 or uh, 500 or 600 or six or 7,000 uh, plants just through our, our propagation techniques. And then we make them available to home gardeners, and we make them available to, uh, you know, companies that are looking at uh, producing the berries for for, for uh, wine production or, or jam production or fresh.
0: Interesting. Fresh. So so that's not, uh, it's not really like they've been crossed with anything else. They're just the best of the bunch. They were the best of these wild uh, plants. Um, I would assume they have the best tasting berries. Is, yes. it, is we, there a wide variety in the way that the Haskat berries taste depending yes, on which cultivar? Uh, um,
2: we're We're still... We're still working on that with Dr. Boers. We're doing selection uh, for Dr. Boers in Prince Edward Island, and uh, we're working more or less in a marine climate. Dr. Boers, being in Saskatchewan, he's in a continental climate, and the difference being uh, would be the humidity. Dr. Boers in Saskatchewan would be selecting plants under a dry, more or less a dry land climate, whereas in uh, Prince Edward Island, um, we're, we're near the sea, we're in the sea, for example, uh, we, we have, uh, uh, rather high humidity, uh, environments. So we're, we're selecting for, you know, the tolerance to this kind of climate. Uh, we're also selecting for, uh, plants that mature at different times of the season. We're selecting for plants that uh, have different berry shapes. Uh, we're looking for specifically for berries that, uh, could be mechanically harvested,
0: mm.
2: and uh, we also have some interesting uh, uh, plants identified for home gardeners. They mm. have uh, large, fat, fat, juicy berries that uh, you know they're they're a little different in in terms of taste. They uh, they look a little bit like a blueberry, but when you actually look at them, you say, "Well, gee, that doesn't really look like a blueberry." And then you taste them, and you say, "Well." See, that tastes a little bit like a plum and a raspberry mixed together, and maybe a little bit of blueberry on on the side. The texture of the when you consume it or have it in your mouth, it's very soft. Uh, it's full of seeds, but the seeds are uh, they don't have a, there's no mouth feel, so they're they're very it's a very palatable uh, berry. And the flavor uh, you get them ripe, uh, they're very tasty.
0: Oh, sounds delicious! My mouth is watering right now yeah. <laughs> as we speak. Um, so, so just let's get a bigger picture. Climate zone. What would you say the climate zone for a house gap is? We've got listeners that are listening from around North America, so people in California, all over the place. So, uh, what would you say the climate zone is in general?
2: Well, uh, <clears throat> you might you might be a bit surprised at what I'm going to tell you, but uh, we have uh, been working with this this crop and have. Uh, you know, it'll it'll work in uh, in it grows quite well in Prince Edward Island. So we're at uh, 46 degrees north latitude. Um, probably they would grow, you know, in in any of the northern climates where we get a bit of cold uh, cold temperatures. Uh, I've got a small trial in uh, in the San Luis Valley in Colorado, up in the mountains at uh, at uh, probably 8,500 feet above sea level. And the, the plants are growing quite well there. Uh, we're lacking bumblebees there. That's the uh, missing, missing component there. But um, we have them growing, uh, let's say, from 46 degrees north latitude, right up to uh, Moose Factory on the, on the shores of James Bay in, in Ontario. And that would be, in terms of a frost zone area, uh,
0: 1A. Wow. That's so, cold. So that's, I guess, Canadian zones. I know it's a little yes, different ma'am. in the state. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hardly anything grows in 1A, but hascaps grow there.
2: Well, hascap will grow there. No that's problem.
0: incredible. If they have if bees to pollinate it. Otherwise, I guess you'd have to hand pollinate.
2: That's right. Or or, uh, or buy, uh, buy little hives of bumblebees and put them up.
0: Wow. Okay. So that's the cold end. And what about the warm end?
2: Uh, that's that's a good question. Um uh, we haven't uh, yet found the uh, the lower limit of the crop yet, and and because we're only four or five or six years into this uh, the development of this crop, uh, we we haven't haven't found the the lower limit of, uh, of production yet. But I, I'm I'm assuming any place with uh, you know with probably 1,400 uh, to 1,600 cold chill hours, uh, these things would would really. Would really do uh, do quite well.
0: So let's see. The furthest south that you've grown them that you know of, uh, that that where we can grow them. Like, can you give me an example of of a place?
2: <clears throat> well, uh, would be uh, Colorado in the northern in the mountains in Colorado. Colorado. That's, that's at ele- at elevation.
0: So, um, if maybe we have listeners that are in other places further south that want to try them. So, um, well,
2: uh, it wouldn't be a crop. Uh, that I would recommend for somebody say in Virginia, unless they're in the mountains, uh, you know, in in uh, some of the colder areas of North America, that's where this crop would be uh, best suited. Uh, it would be like trying to grow grow oranges in Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. They might grow quite well during the summer, but uh, their lifespan would be quite restricted. So there are there are some limits. Uh, we're trying to profile this crop. We're, this is a new crop uh it's not like a different variety of apple like McIntosh, Cortland, or ida red or um, or um uh honey crisp this is this is a brand new crop so you would have apples oranges pears grapes blue honeysuckle berries <laughs> okay yes so and and because it's such a new crop we have to learn how to uh, how to how to plant these things what kind of fertilizers they like, if there are, um, you know, any disease issues that are going to happen in the future. We have to uh, understand, uh, you know, the harvesting side of uh, the berry. We have to look at uh, how to handle the berries after we harvest them. Um, and then uh, some of the other aspects would be where are the where are the best production areas, say, in North America? How far north can we go and have... Uh, berries that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, that can make uh, a commercial harvest or or be useful for home gardeners, or how far south in uh, Canada or the United States we can grow them. I know we can grow them all through the Canada, you know, in all parts of Canada, probably most of the northern states in the United States, I think they would do, do quite well.
0: All right. Well, Don, <coughs> we're going to be able to continue this conversation. We need to have a, a little break and a few words from our sponsors but after the break, we're going to explore more about Haskap varieties, protecting them from pests, which we'll talk about. So hold on the line. Uh, you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back soon.
1: Get back and reach the stars. Pull one down for you. Are you new to growing fruit trees or perhaps a seasoned expert? Either way, come and join the Community Orchard Network. We are a group of community and home orchardists from across North America who gather through monthly webinars, radio broadcasts like this one, and podcasts. We want to share our experience, deepen our knowledge, and widen the movement. Join the conversation. Visit www.org orchardpeople.com forward slash network to find out more
0: this message was brought to you by the baltimore orchard project
1: hey sally your garden is looking great today
0: thanks gary Your lawn is looking a little bit dry.
1: Ah, that's okay. It's all going to change. Soon I'm going to plant a fruit tree in my yard. I'm
0: thinking an apple tree or maybe peach. That sounds great, but do you know what you're doing?
1: Well, fruit trees are easy. You just plant them, water them, and wait for
0: the harvest, right? Actually, that's not quite the case. What? Organic orchardists spend a lot of time protecting their fruit trees from pest and disease problems. Really? And in order to thrive, fruit trees need to be pruned every year.
1: Hmm, I didn't know that.
0: I'll tell you what. Before you buy your tree, why don't you go to OrchardPeople.com? You'll learn lots about growing fruit from the blog, and there's a fantastic monthly newsletter with seasonal tips and reminders. Maybe I should check that out. Yeah, then if you really want to move ahead, you can sign up for OrchardPeople.com's Beginner Fruit Tree Care course. So maybe I should hold off on buying my tree today? You got it. The more you know, the better your tree will grow. Sign up for a free membership to OrchardPeople.com today. The
1: following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live right now, email her, realityradio101 at yahoo.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner.
0: This is the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by the Community Orchard Network. I'm Susan Poisner. and today I'm chatting with Dawn Northcott of Phytocultures Limited, and we're talking about a berry that is blue, but that is definitely not a blueberry. We're talking about hascaps. And also, please do email us now if you have a question at realityradio101 at yahoo.com. We'll read your message and we can ask Dawn any questions that you may have. So Don you're still on the line with us, right? Yes, yes, we are. Wonderful. So we were talking about pest and disease problems. And I want to know, I know that I've heard quite a few reports that these wonderful housecaps get harvested very, very quickly by birds before humans ever get a chance to eat them. Is that the case?
2: I can I can uh yes, affirm that uh we uh I can give a little bit of a story about what happened. Uh, we, one of the first crops that, uh, we had coming along, we had lots of nice little berries on the plants and we said, okay, now we'll have a field day. We'll show, uh, all the local folks, uh, um, what the berries look like, how they grow, how they're growing. Uh, the berries started to turn blue. And, uh, so we, uh, Open, had an open house. We invited folks to come in. Come in on a Saturday morning, and uh, taste the berries, and pick them. And uh, uh, we were on Friday. Went out, looked. Everything was fine, and the berries were starting to get ripe. And and uh, we said, okay, this is great. So uh, we're gonna have a great day tomorrow. So. Uh, <clears throat> Saturday morning arrives about 11 o'clock, folks show up, we go out, we go out to the field, I, I give a little presentation, and I say, okay, folks, here's your baskets, uh, go out and pick some, and uh, tell me what you think, and uh, people started going down the rows, and they say, Don, where's the berries? <laughs> to my shock, I, I go and look, in and there isn't a berry left on the plant. Uh, we were visited that day by a flock of cedar waxwings and uh, those little little uh birds uh ate every berry we had so i i can say that uh from then on we we've installed uh we've had to put uh bird net over these plants to uh, prevent to yep. prevent uh the bird
0: damage that's what I was going to ask you because uh, I have also like I said I've heard online that people are saying darn they we missed it somehow they got it first and I don't know if it's all birds that like that like hascaps uh, or if it's just some certain types of birds um, but that's the question you know people will want to experiment um, with this new wonderful plant but do you suggest that they plant them in some sort of structure where it's going to be easy to drape them with, uh, a netting, or and how fine does the netting have to be?
2: Well, uh, the, uh, first I could say, uh, uh, grow the plants. Uh, the birds will love you. Uh, <laughs> there, if you uh, if you're a bird watcher, uh, any any bird that is a berry consumer will uh, will flock to these uh, to these uh, plants. Uh, literally, uh, if you're after the berries. Uh, we're recommending folks uh, uh, install some kind of netting system over the plants when the first berries start to turn uh, blue and that will happen probably the first, first week of June in our location uh, we're finding that uh, uh, most birds uh, we're finding uh, robins blue jays, blackbirds grackles, starlings uh, crows Ravens. Oh, uh, there are some other small birds. Uh, they're in testing the berries to see when they're ripe, and as soon as they're ripe, they uh, they consume them. So you need a net that's small enough to exclude a cedar waxwing, which is probably uh, the most voracious uh, bird, uh, and that would be maybe an inch and a half uh, on a, on a net on the net. <clears throat> hmm.
0: So I guess so, you have to sort of uh, build, I don't know, a teepee kind of structure and then peg the, the there, fabric into yes. the ground.
2: We, we, we bought net and then uh, made, made like a, uh, uh, almost like a pop tent type of uh, arrangement. We just put a, uh, 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 almost like a clothesline over the top of the plants and then draped the net over the top. And what's very important you have to put the nets to the ground and then peg the nets to the ground because these little birds, they somehow, uh, they will find a way to get inside the net and uh, get your birds.
0: So do you think yeah. in the long term, I mean, right now, I, I don't think you can find these in supermarkets, am I correct? That's correct. Do you think that's going to happen in the future?
2: Oh, yes. We're, we're, we're actively trying to turn this into a brand new blueberry industry. We have... Uh, we have... Uh, um, a number of commercial people interested in this berry because of the, uh, the high antioxidant content of the berries. Uh, if you're comparing these to high bush blueberries, they would have four times the uh, antioxidant levels of, uh, let's say an equivalent amount of uh, high bush blueberry berries. Um, they have a, a unique flavor. Uh, the juice is very dark. It's uh, 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 an intense juice. Um, uh, so it, 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 uh, we've used them in, uh, a lot of folks come and tell us they use them in smoothies. Uh, they are used on, uh, uh, you know, in, in jams and jellies and things like that. One of the treats that we give our, uh, our visitors when they come to visit our facility here in Prince Edward Island is, uh, uh we have, uh, vanilla ice cream and we put the, uh, 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 berries over the top of the ice cream. First, we freeze the berries, and then they—they uh, they basically uh, uh, the juice. A lot of juice comes out, and they are uh, make a make a really uh, stunning presentation.
0: Mm, sounds yummy. So, so if I'm or one of the listeners are, are if we're ready to go out and 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 uh, order some plants, can we get away with one, or does it have specific requirements?
2: Well, uh, they're like blueberries and apples. They uh, they need to be cross-pollinated. So you need uh, you need you need at least two uh, varieties. And uh, variety pairings would be you know uh, some of the varieties we're working with are uh, Indigo Treat, Indigo Gem, uh, Tundra, and then there are there are some uh, uh, other varieties that uh, we use as uh, we call them pollinators.
0: Oh, and, so do uh, they? The pollinator varieties actually produce fruit or not?
2: Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yep. they do. Yep. and they—they uh, they are quite—they're quite vigorous. Uh, quite they—they flower over a longer period of time, and uh, so they—they they catch some of the early pollinating varieties, and then they catch some of the late pollinating ones.
0: Hmm.
2: So, they're, and and they're—they're they're quite. Uh, uh, I can say that the uh, the varieties that came from the uh, University of Saskatchewan probably have a, have a better flavor and better size profile than some of the pollinating types. But the pollinating types are very good as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, so and in, in one last question for you. I think I, there, there are some people like myself, I, I sometimes like uh, combining plants with edible berries and food, you know, edible plants uh, with yep. ornamental plants in a bed. Is that something that you could do or would the competition of being planted beside a... You know a bunch of echinacea or something would that be just too much uh, uh for the has these, these
2: are these are woody perennials they're like a they're like a bush so what you would do is if you were going to put them in your garden put them on the back uh let's say the back part of your garden uh, a place that would be easy easy to uh uh manage in terms of pruning and and netting and uh, probably full sunlight mm-hmm and, and and they they you would need uh, uh, what we're doing uh, as a as a as a non chemical way we're putting uh, a heavy bark mulch underneath the plants to uh, to prevent uh, you know weeds and and uh,
0: grasses. Okay, and the pruning pruning would be basic shrub pruning, just uh, cutting yes. out dead just, wood. Just,
2: just just shape management. That's all.
0: Really? Okay. Wonderful. Well, Don, thank you so much for coming on the show and for this chat. I feel like we could chat on. There's a lot of other interesting things that you're doing as well. Hopefully yes. you'll get to come back again on the show one day. So um, is there any last words you would like to say to our listeners about about housecaps? Uh,
2: stay tuned to the channel because uh, there are some exciting developments coming down, uh, coming from our breeding, breeding efforts.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much uh, to you, Don, and, and goodbye for now. Have a great day.
2: Thank you, Susan. Bye.
0: Okay, so we're coming up to another message from our sponsors. And then after that, how do orchards grow and change over time? You're listening to Reality Radio 101. This is the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by the Community Orchard Network. I'll be back soon.
1: Leads with just one eye and awakens the moment that you leave. Oh, try to away. are you new to growing fruit trees or perhaps a seasoned expert? Either way, come and join the Community Orchard Network. We are a group of community and home orchardists from across North America who gather through monthly webinars, radio broadcasts like this one, and podcasts. We want to share our experience, deepen our knowledge, and widen the movement. Join the conversation. Visit www.orchardpeople.com forward slash network to find out more.
0: This message was brought to you by the Baltimore Orchard Project.
1: Enjoying the cool breeze under the shade of a tree,
3: picking apples and berries from your local community orchard, jumping in a pile of leaves. You can do all these activities and more when you connect with nature where you live. Lily Leaf Solutions works to connect people with quality parks, trails, trees, and orchards near them. Through technical expertise and data-driven strategic planning, Lily Leaf Solutions empowers urban residents to become advocates for nature in their community. When we all have access to quality nature, we all progress together. Lily Leaf Solutions empowerment together. Follow us on Twitter at LilyLeaf and visit us at lilyleaf.com
1: today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live, email her, realityradio101 at yahoo.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner.
0: I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by the Community Orchard Network, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and lots more. So thanks for tuning in. Now, way back in 2007, I dreamed of planting a community orchard in my local park and that's here in Toronto, Canada. I had learned about community orchards in different parts of North America, and it seemed to me like a great idea. So during a trip to British Columbia, I did a little research, and I visited a number of community orchards around that province. I wanted to learn from them, how they did it. I wanted to learn from their successes and from their mistakes. One of the first orchards that I visited was the Sharing Farm Orchard in Richmond, B.C. It was beautiful, it was huge, and their goal was to grow lots of fresh fruit that could be donated to the local food bank. I was so impressed at how professionally they trained their volunteers, I wanted to create an orchard like that on a smaller scale. But every orchard transforms and changes over time. So on the phone today, I have Anna Rawlings research and education farm coordinator in the Sustainable Agriculture and Food Systems Department of Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Hi, Anna. Thanks for coming on the show today.
3: Hi. Hello from the West Coast.
0: Hello. How's everything over there? What's the weather like?
3: Fantastic. Uh, Pretty normal weather for us in the fall. Um, Some nice days of sunshine like today, but of course, uh, the rain train is coming. Oh dear,
0: the (laughs) rain train. Oh my goodness. Well, you're used to that.
3: Yeah, yeah. And we're preparing for some colder nighttime temperatures. But yeah, we are used to the rain coming around this time of year. So it's no different than any other year. So
0: Anna, way back when I visited what was then called the Sharing Farm Orchard, you hadn't yet quite become involved. But can you tell me a little bit about how that that community orchard began?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Sharing Farm Society, uh, which used to be uh, the Richmond Fruit Tree Sharing uh, Project, uh, they had the site down in South Richmond and they had been growing vegetables on it. And Dr. Kent Molnix, who is uh, a researcher here at Kwantlen Polytechnic University, he approached the board and suggested that perhaps during this period of transition where they were moving to the, the vegetables to another site that perhaps they wanted to plant an apple orchard. So Dr. Mollynix and the sharing farm, uh, they planted an acre of a whole bunch of different varieties of apples, uh, liberties, jonahries, Spartans, all sorts. And so it initially started as this one acre of trees, and uh, there was actually a research element to it. So they had different types of mulch, and they had planted up the so drive rows with a number of different mixes of of plants uh, to establish in the drive row there. So uh, essentially, it started with just that acre, and then. Uh, Over time, uh, we added to it. So in 2010, uh, Kwantlen Polytechnic University started the Richmond Farm School. So this is a 10-month practical training program for people who want to get into agriculture, not just field crops, but also fruit trees. So with the Richmond Farm School in 2010, we planted another half acre of pears and started um, adding to the apples as well. So over time, it's expanded. Uh,
0: That sounds like a lot of trees. Like, how many trees would that be for those of us who need to kind of picture?
3: So it started with 140 apples, uh, and then we added 50 pears. And actually, at the peak of uh, the tree count, we had 242 apples, 130 pears, 40 cherries, and a few one-offs of, of some different varieties that we were trying out. So quite a lot of trees.
0: That's a lot of trees. So so at this point, the farm school is involved. I mean, was there enough people to care for and prune all of those trees? Um, I know when I was there, I attended a workshop that Kent taught, mm-hmm. which was wonderful.
3: Yeah. So uh, Kent has been a great orchard mentor. He worked with the sharing farm and, uh, the orchard coordinator at that time, Kimmy Hendis, and they created some plans around big work parties. Of course, that's, that's the big thing around these community orchards is you need, uh, coordination to figure out what time of the year you need to have a lot of people come in and then you need just bodies. You need people to come out. And so, Uh, With the Richmond Farm School, we would organize big work parties integrated into the program there. And then, of course, with sharing farm volunteers, uh, they would be integrated into big work parties. So especially mulching and pruning. These were big jobs where we just needed a lot of folks. So uh, with some good coordination, we were able to put that together. And so, yeah, it, it, it works over time. But of course, you know. You just need someone to kind of keep at it as well, week to week. So
0: the farm school, is that, uh, is that still what's happening on the site, or is it a different program now, the Sustainability, uh, Sustainable Agriculture Program? It, how Where's the connection between the right. two?
3: So um, Kwantlen Polytechnic University and the Sharing Farm uh, worked together for quite a few years, primarily through the farm school at the orchard site and at their other uh, vegetable site. Um, So essentially, a couple years ago, in about 2013, the Sharing Farm realized that the orchard was a big investment. It was a lot of pressure on them. They, They were going through some changes. And so we... Uh, essentially have been going through a transition where uh, along with the city of Richmond, we've been moving towards taking over the management. So KPU has now been managing the orchard since last year. And so essentially the transition has gone from uh, just kind of a pure community orchard to a mix of uh, a research orchard, a teaching orchard, a community orchard, and ultimately an orchard uh, that's been managed by the university uh, primarily for uh, the Richmond Farm School. So the Richmond Farm School is one of the groups that interacts with with the orchard and provides some help. And then, of course, our four-year degree program in sustainable agriculture. So our students from that program are also being integrated into the orchard where they can do practical work and learn about fruit trees. And then, of course continuing that legacy of having it as a space that's open to the public that provides education for the public as well so it's it has been going through a bit of a transition but it really means a lot more teaching, a lot more students, uh, a lot more experimenting. And so we've been, we've been really excited to, to continue our work with the orchard since we've been involved in it since 2008 and really gotten to see how it changed over time.
0: I love fruit trees. I, I think fruit trees change the world. You know, you put in a few fruit trees, it changes everything, right? They have their needs. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like I always say this, it's like having children. Like there there's no <laughs> these are beings. They're not going to be dug up and thrown out at the end of the season and they have their needs and and we need to work with them and they tell us what they need. So
3: Absolutely. And I mean, we've had a pretty complicated site. Um I think the aspect of where you plant them, you know, it's going to reveal so much over time as you see the fruit trees mature in this place that you've put them. You know, you can't just pull them out and 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 put them somewhere else. It becomes a commitment. So, you know, a lot of people don't think you can grow fruit in Richmond, but we definitely have. Um, although we've had to, we've had to adapt to it. So, they've, these trees have told us a lot about the site. We started with a site that was very acidic, and so we've been kind of trying to support the trees by adding a little bit of lime and helping to to regulate that that part of it. Um, But of course, there's other things we can't change, like there's lots of wind on the site. It's a very wet site, so our water table gets quite high in the winter, and with that comes all sorts of different uh, diseases and issues that we just need to help the trees with, and and it changes over different stages of their life. So a young sapling needs different types of support than a more mature tree, and some of our trees are now, you know, entering their, their sixth year, and so it's... It's definitely been interesting watching them develop over time.
0: In our community orchard uh, in Toronto, I remember one of my first mentors uh, came to the park and he saw where we had planted the trees and what we were doing. And he said, you know, Susan, this is the perfect learning orchard. (laughs) Because everything was wrong. I mean, I'm not saying everything was wrong, but basically it wasn't a beautiful big farmland with perfect soil and perfect everything. We were using city soil to try and grow our trees. And Mm -hmm. so a perfect learning orchard is one where you will encounter challenges so that when your students go off into the world, they'll know what to expect um, and every site has its challenges, even the perfect farmland sites do as well, but uh, quite interesting. So, okay, so how, things have changed, and your site has taught you what it wants. Are you planting different types of trees now, uh, or yeah, in a different absolutely. way? Yeah,
3: Yeah. We, we've had some, I mean, one of the goals of the orchard at its inception was to essentially test out varieties, so we planted many, many varieties of apples, many varieties of um, pears, uh, and we also have a whole bunch of different cherries. We have some plums now. So one of the big things that, that has been really clear to us and that our orchard has told us pretty clearly is that uh, the the disease pressure is just much too high on the apples in that site. They They have a very hard time at multiple stages of their life So we've actually found that pears and plums and cherries do amazing. And so, you know, more of a good thing. So we've been planting uh, more of those particular types of things. Pears, um, we're planning on expanding our plums. We've had a couple plum trees that have just had great yields. And, And so I think a really positive aspect of the orchard over time has been because we've planted lots of different varieties and lots of different types of fruit trees even though we may not have gotten the results that we wanted with one particular variety or one particular type of tree we found that there are lots of other great results that have come from unexpected fruit trees essentially so Hmm. um you can't there there's a certain point where you say okay you know i can't put a square peg in a round hole and and this site is telling me you know maybe it's not ideal for apples maybe that's too much of an investment in time and energy and maybe in the end you know the apples won't be able to establish very well so why why try and go against nature and what the site is saying you know why don't we try to to plant more of what's working and work with the site to produce as much amazing, delicious fruit as we possibly can. Mm. So it's definitely been interesting. And yeah, planting lots of varieties has really helped us identify what works, what doesn't, what's the issue. It's been great.
0: The same thing is happening with us, but in the sense that we find that disease-resistant apple trees are doing very well on our site. Apricots Mm -hmm. are doing amazing. Pears, forget it. Plums, yeah. struggle, you know, so it's like even if there was another site right next door, they could have totally different uh, challenges mm-hmm. and different requirements and different needs. So uh, it's all a big learning
3: journey. Yeah, and I think it's important not to see it as a failure, right? So, you know, you plant a couple apple trees and maybe you can't get a handle on uh, the anthracnose that's, that's getting to them. So that's that's a disease that we've had issues with, and it's just because of moisture, And, you know, you don't have to see it as a failure. Sometimes it's just, you know, it's just a little too difficult to push against that pressure. So, you know, I think it's a victory to find what works and and to really capitalize on on what you get out of the site and adapt to it as well. I mean, the the trees, you can help them adapt, but you also have to adapt a little bit too and have some flexibility there.
0: It's a two-way conversation. Absolutely.
3: Um,
0: Tell me a little bit about the farm school. How many hours will the students spend in the orchard? How many hours will the students learn about, you know, all all the the theory of what they're going to be doing
3: with the trees? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, with the farm school program, we combine in-classroom learning with in-the-field practical training. So Kent Mullenix actually runs a 40-hour fruit tree production class. With the students, so they uh, have classroom time, outdoor instruction time with Kent, uh, where they talk about canopy management, how trees develop, what the trees need, and then um, they actually spend, you know, upwards of 50 hours at the orchard, depending on the year, pruning and kind of seeing the trees through the year. Because the program starts in February and ends in November, so they really get to see a whole cycle of the orchard. So we involve them in all the stages, everything from, you know, early spring pruning, grafting, uh, fertilization, summer management, irrigation systems, all of that type of work. And, and then going into harvest and, and assessment of the trees going into the wintertime and winter prep. So it's it's nice for them because they do get that. Formal instruction where they get some time to wrap their head around the theory, but then we also do take them outside, and and, and it's very similar with our undergraduate students. So they have a summer, uh, sorry, a springtime uh, fruit crop production class that many take, but then during that same year, they have three courses in a row: so uh, a spring, a summer, and a fall semester where they have an agroecosystems management class. And that literally, you know, we just mean farming. <laughs> so they come out with us as well, and, and they they have that theory coming into it, but then they spend the summer and uh, also the spring and fall actually getting their hands dirty and seeing what happens. You know, they pruned in the spring, and then they get to see what happens with that by the time the fall comes. I love that. that that.
0: That's so rewarding. When you actually see um, the the relationship with the tree unfold, you know, you make some pruning cuts, and then you see how the tree responds. It's like, I don't know, a chess game or a conversation (laughs) where I do something, I do X and Y, and the tree does you know, P and Q, and then we just Mm -hmm. work together, and I love it. And I'm quite excited about espalier pruning as well, which is something that I'm quite passionate about. But again, it's this conversation, and you're sculpting the tree, but it's teaching you at the same time.
3: Um, Absolutely. And every year is unique. I mean, this year we had quite a bit of drought, actually, on the West Coast. We had a very, very dry summer, and we usually expect a lot of rain into the late spring. But it's been—it was dry since late March, uh, which is very strange for us. And so it's been interesting watching the trees as they deal with, um, you know, the, the stress of drought. We do have an irrigation system, but it doesn't prevent, you know, some of the other issues from coming up. And, and just how dry it was. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely been interesting for me as somebody who's been at that orchard um, first. As through the um, through the Richmond farm school starting in 2010 till now where I'm managing this orchard um, it's been interesting seeing how it's all developed because in 2010 I helped plant those pears and and now they're finally uh, coming into coming into fruit and so watching how it's developed and every year we've done different prunings and and all sorts of uh, kind of helpful actions for the for the pear trees and it's been really really rewarding seeing the how that turns into fruit and how that turns into healthy trees because it really is a long game some years you kind of have to cut your losses and see what happens and and do something that may not result in something positive and obvious in the first year but really over those few years you're going to get a lot of reward. I mean, apples come into fruit a lot earlier than pears, but for pears, you know, you're waiting five, seven, ten years for these trees to start producing fruit. And so, you know, sometimes you're, you're making a lot of long-game decisions.
0: Hmm. As somebody once told me, you plant pears for your heirs. uh, you know i guess so um so it's in in most conversations about fruit trees the first thing people will say oh how's the fruit how's the fruit tasting and the more you're involved with fruit trees you realize well the first two three years we remove all the fruit anyways so you know to benefit the tree um but how is the fruit it's been long enough that you've had a little harvest right
3: yeah definitely we've had um we've had quite a few apples uh, coming off of the system I mean several thousand pounds over the past few years and they've been pretty beautiful Uh, lots of different varieties Um, it's unfortunate because the apples uh, haven't been doing well as far as as the actual tree but the, the actual fruit yield has been fantastic and the pears are just starting to come into fruit and they are so juicy and so wonderful and so it's just been so rewarding Seeing you know going from a little whip planted a few you know several years ago to now, large fifteen foot trees with really beautiful diecho fruit and and calais pears as well and so it's it's amazing watching them i mean it's like you said, right it's you have children first. You kind of watch them grow, and then suddenly they start going to school and <laughs> coming home with all these amazing things. And so <laughs> I feel like it's the same way. You end up with these trees, and you think, wow, you made that. That's that's fantastic. Good for and, you. And, you know, you kind of I, – I I sometimes when I look at the trees, I think, well, I can't really take credit for it. These trees have been working so hard, and they produce all this amazing fruit. Yeah, you help along the way, but, man, you kind of end up in awe of these amazing – beings that can produce such amazing, delicious
0: fruit. And yet, they couldn't do it without us. Yeah, absolutely. They couldn't do it without us, and that's the I think that's the misconception that so many people have out there, is just pop them in the ground, they'll take care of themselves. I mean, they could do it, but there would be a lot of pest and disease problems, uh, the fruit wouldn't be tasty, and can you imagine, like, 250 trees, 400 trees that were left neglected? It would just be a horrible, horrible thing.
3: Absolutely. Well, I mean, we've put... Every year, it's hundreds of hours of, of management into these trees. Um, at this point, we're probably around two acres of fruit trees. So we have a tractor and a mower and a sprayer for the tractor so we can apply our organic uh, products. and And so, you know, we've had to scale up because at some point you need to decide, okay, well, I have seven trees, that's really great, but what if I have 200 trees? Will I still be able to to do all of this work, you know, every week or every other week or every month? And so being able to choose your tools correctly can help and, and yeah, you have to stay involved. I mean, a lot of people see, oh, okay, there's a lot of work in the spring and there's all this work in the fall, but there's so much maintenance that happens in the summer and so, you know, having some time where you can, talk to other community orchards or other small orchards and find out okay well you know when's your busy time how much time should i put in how does this scale up when i have 10 times more trees than i have now and so i think these are all really important questions because yeah it's it's, if you're not involved um it's there are things that will just get out of control and they do need our support they are um domesticated species in most cases exactly. they, they've been bred to need our support so.
0: exactly well i am so grateful to you Anne. i'm so glad that we managed to connect and and chat and i hope we'll have you or kent back in the future on the show there's so many different things we can talk about pest and disease and specific diseases and how you guys deal with them so hopefully you'll come back again someday
3: absolutely and i hope everybody has a wonderful winter and and has a nice fall with nice harvests and an easy winter prep, and we'll see everybody in the spring. <laughs> oh, thank
0: you so much, Anna. Okay, you take care, and we'll talk soon.
3: Have a wonderful day. Thank okay, you. Okay, goodbye. Bye.
0: Well, that's all for the show today. I can't believe how quickly it's uh, it's gone by. Before we wrap up, just a big thank you to our two guests, to Anna Rawlings and to Don Northcott. We really appreciate them coming on the show today. So thank you also to the members of the Community Orchard Network who've helped make this happen. I'm Susan Poisner. Thanks for listening, and this is the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. If you want to learn more about the Community Orchard Network, I've created a page on my website where you can find out lots more information on how to sign up for our newsletter. Just visit www.orchardpeople.com work. And you can read our frequently asked questions and check out the free webinars and podcasts that we've recorded. Tune in next month and you'll meet some more great guests and you'll learn more about fruit trees, permaculture, and forest gardens. Our show goes out on the last Tuesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Susan Poisner. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.
1: You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.